Well, good morning. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. And for the course of this month, we've been exploring what does it look like to put love to work? How does that really work? Like Jeannie talked about, to take the songs that we sing and to make them a way of life. The things that we hear and study from the Bible to be actually the way that we live. How do we put love to work? And so we started by looking at how God loves us, and then we look at how we love God. Last week, Jeannie did an amazing job talking about how we love hard people. How do we love people who are hard to love? And this week, we're going to continue on and actually conclude our Love Work series by looking at how we love our neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor and how do you love them? And what does that really look like in our world and specifically in our city today? The good news for us is that we live in a city or around a city. We care about a city that loves neighborhoods. This city of Chicago loves its neighborhoods. We have a lot of neighborhood pride and not a lot of people know from the outside that our city is not just one city, but a lot of little cities made up inside of it. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want to see if you can guess, or maybe you know the answer to how many official like Chicago communities are there? How many official Chicago neighborhoods are there actually? And here's what I want you to do. Share with them which one you live in, or if you don't live in the city, which one is your favorite, all right? This also, for you who are in overflow, we love you guys. You can go ahead and talk uh, amongst yourselves as well. How many neighborhoods officially? Which one do you live in, or which one is your favorite? I see there's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of energy when we get to talk about our neighborhood and how we feel about our neighborhood. Now, how many of you, does anyone know how many official Chicago neighborhoods there are? 77. You don't have to whisper it. You can shout it. 77. You know get that right? Okay, here's what's fascinating. There's officially 77 Chicago neighborhoods, but at any given time, in fact, right about now, you know, they, they would say there's, based on kind of economic factors and socioeconomic factors and whatever real estate agents tell us, there's around 200 actual neighborhoods in Chicago. 77 recognized by the city, but we've come up with a lot more on our own. It's an amazing thing that our city does. We kind of draw lines that aren't hard set. No one like, would know exactly here, there, and everywhere, but we all sort of know what our neighborhood is, and we tend to stay within it. We love our neighborhood. We live in the West Loop. We love this neighborhood. We lived in Humble Park for a couple years. We love the HP. Very different neighborhoods have very different identities. Each neighborhood has its own kind of identity, and what's amazing is we tend to not only love our neighborhood, but live within our neighborhood. In this neighborhood, this is where our dog's vet is. This is where we do our dry cleaning, all within walking distance. Our favorite restaurants, coffee shops. I used to get my hair cut in this neighborhood, but a month ago she moved into the loop, and I'm seriously reconsidering our relationship. <laughs> this is difficult. This is challenging. It's a road we're going to have to cross together. You think about it. If you lived outside the city, or maybe you currently do, people don't tend to think in those terms. Now, anyone who lives in or around Chicago claims Chicago as our city. You can live in Aurora, and people can ask you where you live, and you will say, Chicago. I live in Chicago. But it's not as simple as that. Chicago has all these different little neighborhoods that we love. We love. And we tend to not cross the lines outside of our neighborhood. We are a city that has learned to love and identify ourselves by our neighborhoods. But what's so fascinating for a city who loves its neighborhoods so much is how much our city has to learn about what it means to really actually love our neighbors. We love our neighborhoods. We have a lot of neighborhood pride. But our city has a lot to learn when it comes to loving our neighbors, loving those outside of the little lines that we've drawn. 
You know, while Chicago is such a great city, we all love living in and around the city. You know what the reality is about our city when it comes to loving our neighbors well? Chicago this last year actually beat New York at yet another thing. Not only do we have better pizza, better sports franchises, and all that kind of stuff, that's a given. This last year, in 2013, actually, we surpassed New York as the murder capital of the country. More murders in our city last year than in New York, and there are a third of the amount of people living in our city as there are in New York. You know, in our city, we have a, a real kind of issue when it comes to the poor and how we see and care for the poor. We love our neighborhoods, but how do we love our neighbors in need? Currently in the city of Chicago, right now today, 15% of our population live in poverty. 15% of our city live in very real poverty. And if you know anything about Chicago public school systems, it is a system that is failing, and it's failing our kids. And maybe you are a teacher that's working to resolve that. That's why we have partnered with Brown and with Debt to be part of the solution. But many of you know it is a system that is fractured, if not failing at best. In fact, what has been said of Chicago is that Chicago, even in the midst of its beautiful diversity, is the last great segregated city in America. We have so much diversity. We are rich in diversity. But we are poor when it comes to crossing the lines from this neighborhood to that neighborhood, from us to them. We love our neighborhoods, but we have a lot to learn when it comes to loving our neighbors. Now, interestingly enough, God has something to say about that. God has a message for not only our city, but for our church and for you specifically. And what I want us to do for the next few moments is to walk through a passage from the Bible, a teaching from Jesus that has profound implications for how we live out our life in this city and around the city and has a very practical application that you can actually put to work today to put love to work in your life today. So I'm going to ask if you would please to grab a Bible. We're going to look at a story Jesus told as found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your own Bible, fantastic. You got it on your phone. Great. If you don't, we've got you covered. There's a blue Bible in your seat back. There's a blue Bible maybe under your seat if you're in the front row. Overflow, we've got you covered with these as well. In the blue Bible, why don't you turn to page 725. Page 725 in the Blue Bible. It's Luke chapter 10. Let me give you a little context while we're all turning there. Jesus is in the middle kind of of the full swing of his three years of public ministry. So if you know about the life of Jesus, there's a lot after his birth that we don't know about. Jesus living kind of in obscurity, living his life out in his community. And in the last three or so years of his life, were spent doing public ministry, teaching, miracles, gathering his disciples, preparing them for what was to come, because ultimately that was all leading to a cross and eventually an empty tomb. So this is right in the middle of his three years of public ministry. And throughout the course of his public ministry, there was a group of individuals, people who wanted nothing less than to shut Jesus down. And they were actually the religious leaders of his day. Jesus very rarely spoke negatively or poorly, if at all, about the political leaders of his day, but he had a lot to say about the religious leaders of his day. The people who sort of brokered their power through religious influence. And so throughout the course of his ministry, religious leaders would try and trap Jesus and trick Jesus, back Jesus into a corner to get him to say something that they could turn around and say, see, he's a sham, he's a fraud, don't you know, stop following him. everyone, look back at us, back to us, back to us. So that's what they tried to do. And this is one of those situations where the religious leaders are trying to trick and trap Jesus. So let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, meaning that were multiple occasions, on one occasion, an expert, 
in the law. You might want to circle an expert because this comes back to play in a little bit. An expert in the law, that means a religious leader, someone who has studied the law and studied God's word, studied the Bible, knew it well, stood up to, what's the word there? Stood up to test Jesus. Stood up to test Jesus, okay? So here's the setting. He is putting Jesus kind of on the spot. He stands up to test him. So this is not a question coming out of his genuine concern or seeking. He wants to trap Jesus. And so he says, teacher, recognizing Jesus's authority, Jesus is a rabbi. And so he acknowledges him as a rabbi. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, Jesus had this way of talking about what life looks like with God on this earth, in this life, and Jesus talked about what life looks like with God after this world, after this life. And so this guy says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get that? How do I get heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus asks him a question. Well, what's written in the law? You're an expert of the law. You, surely there's got to be a verse about that. What does it say? And he's asked this question, how do you read it. Now, we read that verse and go, uh, left to right. <laughs> you know, how else would you read something? It's not all what that word actually implies. The word there, read, means how do you interpret it? How do you take the written law, the Bible, and apply it to your life? What do you think that this is saying? Jesus is saying, okay, expert in the law, you know the law. How do you interpret it? How do you read it? How do you live out what is written down? Now, look at his answer, verse 27. See if this doesn't sound familiar. The expert in the law answered this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Does this sound familiar? Who else said this? Jesus did. So this is what's really interesting. This expert in the law is saying to Jesus, what do I do? How do I get eternal life? Jesus says, well, how do you interpret the law? He says, well, it basically comes down to this. Probably because he heard Jesus say it. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and love others. That's, that's like, is that, like, is that the right answer? You know, is, what, is that what you want, Jesus? And look what Jesus says in verse 28. You've answered correctly. Great job. Give yourself an A+. Then he says, now, do this and you'll live. And you can kind of see Jesus like, are we done here? Are we good? You know, it's like situation's over. Like, you got it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourself. We looked at this two weeks ago. Everything else comes after that. Love God, love others, then live your life out of that. Start there. You can't lose. Love God and love others with all of who you are. Jesus says, I think we're good here, right? That's it. Look at this, verse 29. But he, the religious expert, wanted to what? Okay, so I'm, there's, I maybe overflow just yelled it, but in this room, because we put it on the board, like we have, you have it in front of you, so let's try that again. This is a very important word I want you to underline. But he wanted to, justify. he wanted to justify himself. Now, what does that mean? He wanted to justify himself. He, he, he wanted to sort of make sure that his excuses justified his lifestyle. He wanted to make sure that he could kind of find the the loophole in the law. He wanted to justify the fact that he wasn't doing what he just answered. He wasn't living his life as he read the law. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who 
is my neighbor? You can kind of see him sort of setting the trap, like, who is my neighbor then, Jesus? Who am I supposed to love? Sure, I get loving God, but who am I really supposed to love? And the question behind the question is not who is my neighbor, but most specifically, who is not? Who do I not have to love? Who do I get to opt out of? What group of people or type of people or specific person am I exempt from loving? Jesus, I need to know who is my neighbor so that I do that and I will follow that to letter of law, but everyone else can just, you know, they're on their own. They're on their own, left to themselves. His desire to justify himself is nothing new. It's age old and it's a part of our human nature. We all do it. We all secretly, whether we admit it or not, want to find the loophole when it comes to God. What's the, okay, okay, I get it. Yep, all, all, I get all the Bible, all that kind of stuff, but what, what do I really have to do? And specifically, what can I do? And how much of the things I can't do, can I do before it trips the alarms? What's the prayer I have to pray? Just tell me the one, what's the one prayer I have to pray to, to get me a spouse or, or a parking space? I don't care. Like, what's the one prayer that I have to pray? Give me the loophole. Who is my neighbor? Who do I love? But more specifically, who do I not have to love? Tell me what I get to opt out of. It's part of human nature. He wants to justify himself. And so Jesus speaks in to his questioning who is my neighbor? Jesus answers with a story, a very famous story. Unfortunately, it's a story that has been declawed over the years. This is a scandalous story that we're about to read, a shocking story when Jesus first told it. We've kind of whittled it down to something like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It is far from that in the context it was originally given. And so I want us to look at the story that Jesus told in the answer to who is my neighbor? In the answer to our excuses and self-justifications for why we don't live the life that God has actually invited us to live with him. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Are you familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? So we're going to read it together as Jesus gave it. This is verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's on a journey. When he was attacked by robbers. Now listen to these details. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus starts out with a very graphic title sequence to this movie. Like, credits haven't even gone up, and a guy has been attacked, robbed, beaten, and left half dead, fully naked on the side of the road. This is where Jesus starts his story. So these are, this is kind of the setup he gives. And they would know exactly what Jesus talks about. He gives this little location. The setting for his story is on a road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This is actually a very famous and familiar road to anyone who would have been listening in Jesus' day. Actually, a couple years ago, I had the privilege to be able to go and travel this road and see this road. I want to show you a picture of what the road looks like from up Jerusalem down to Jericho. Because you literally travel down from a higher elevation down to a lower elevation to get to Jericho. And the road is incredibly narrow. And it's incredibly windy. Lots of little corners and turns and hills and drop-offs and caves where anyone could sort of hide and do any amount of harm that they wanted to do. It's a very famous road. Now, when Jesus is telling the story, that's the context. A man was walking down a road. It's not like, in our minds, you might be thinking like Lakeshore Drive, you know, multiple lane kind of thing. Not at all. This is like the lakefront running path, okay? That's how wide we're talking here. So this is the road, and it goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Any one of these religious leaders would have traveled this at any number of points throughout their 
life. So Jesus sets the context, lets them know about this road, a very, very famous road. In fact, in Jesus' day, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was known as the way of blood. So we have like the Ike, the Kennedy. They had the way of blood. (laughs) Not exactly a fun road to travel. And I'm sure it had just as many potholes as our roads do. So this is what the context is. This isn't even the story yet. This is the setting. So man's on this road, the way of blood from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked. The religious leaders have thought, yep, that's, that can happen on that road. So then Jesus goes on to tell them what happens. And he uses three characters to break his story down. It's a common story teaching method to give kind of three examples, three characters. Now, you may be familiar with this. Maybe you've heard your dad tell a joke about a priest, a rabbi, and a lawyer walked into a bar. You know, that kind of setup, this is where it came from. It came from the Bible. And so <laughs> this is that kind of setup. And Jesus uses another rule of three for this storytelling. Very common for a rabbi to use a pattern for storytelling. His listeners would recognize it. He gives three things that each of them do. So three characters do three things over the next couple of interactions that we're going to see. So keep that in mind. Three characters do the same three things. And this is the framework we're going to look at the story through, and then we're going to look at our own lives through. Each of the three characters has an opportunity to see something, specifically in this case to see someone, to go somewhere, and to do something. Each of them sees someone, goes somewhere, and does something. This is the pattern that repeats through this story. So Jesus tells the story, verse 31, a priest, you got to love that that's where he starts speaking to a room of priests and religious leaders. This is where he starts. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, so there he is, see, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And this is a very interesting way for Jesus to start the story. What we see here is a religious leader who comes and he sees this man lying on the side of the road. He sees him. He sees him not as someone who is in need, not as someone who's hurt, but he sees him as an inconvenience. He sees him as someone else's problem. Maybe he sees him as someone who deserved what he got. No one should walk this road by themselves. He deserved what he got. He didn't pay attention. This is the way of blood. He should know better. He saw a problem, not a person. And then he goes somewhere. Where does he go? The other side of the road. Now remember, this is not Lakeshore Drive. This is the lakefront running path. And so to walk around this person, he would literally have to sidestep around this naked, beaten, bruised, half-dead man. He walks around. That's where he goes. And what does this religious leader, this keeper of God's law, what does he do? Nothing. Nothing. He does nothing. He may have had all kinds of different reasons for why he did nothing, but the reality is, regardless of his reasons, his intentions are revealed by his response. His heart is revealed by his response. He does nothing. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, it just so happens that another guy was walking down this road. Verse 32, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, the man that was beaten up and bruised, He passed by on the other side. Do you see the pattern here? Here's the second guy doing the same three things. What does he see? He sees a problem. Maybe he saw ahead of him and he saw the priest walk around him. He said, well, if it's good enough for the priest, it's good enough for me. So he decides to walk around him. He does nothing. Goes to the other side, does 
nothing. Now, Jesus is choosing a very specific person for this second character. Priest is the first one. A lot of the guys in the room were priests. When they heard this, they knew that he was talking to them. A Levite, though, was not quite at the status of a priest. A Levite was involved in all the temple rituals and practices, but they were more like kind of the, Levites were kind of like the, like the water boys or, or the team managers to the priests. They were on the team, but they did not hold as much authority. And so there were probably a bunch of Levites gathered around as well, people who were kind of the keeper of the practices of the temple. And Jesus says, yeah, you too. It's in your heart too. You see this as someone else's problem. And you go around and you do nothing. These are the first two responses that Jesus gives in his story. And they were very, very, very challenging and very, very disturbing in their day. And in ours, too, how is it that people who claim to know the heart of God can miss the heartbeat of God, can look at someone who's in need or someone who's hurting as someone else's problem and go around and do nothing? My hunch is all of us, no matter where you're at with God or where you're at kind of the whole faith structure, I bet all of us have had a moment, especially living in or working in or around the city, you've had one of those walk-by moments, haven't you? Where you, you knew, man, this person's hurting or they're, maybe they're in trouble or there's something I can do. And, but like these first two, you, you, you walk by. Someone else can solve that. I don't, I don't have time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be late to work, or I don't have any money that I can give or help this person, and I don't even know what to say or what to do. And so, like these first two, you walk by. And the challenging thing that Jesus is speaking into that group and into our church here today is the people that you and I actually walk by may very well be the people God is inviting you to walk to. Who is it that you're walking by now, it may be a specific person on your way to work. Maybe a group of people. Maybe a group of people where, for whatever reason, again, we don't know the reasons in this story, for whatever reason, you've written them off. Oh, they always tend to act this way. Oh, they always kind of get into those problems. Or these are their problems. And so you walk by. Could it be, could it be that God is actually inviting you, instead of walking by, to walk to, to walk into, to walk up to, to be a part of where God's already at and what he's already doing. This is the tension of the first two characters. Then Jesus reveals our hero, the one who doesn't walk by but walks to, and he chooses the most unsuspecting hero in this story. Verse 33, but, Jesus says, you've seen what the first two, the priest, the Levite, you've seen what they do, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Just hit pause right there. And Jesus chooses a very specific person as a hero. A lot of these stories would tend to have that where a rabbi would tell a story about either the power structure of that day, either the Roman structure, and he'd give two examples of bad leadership. And then he would give the hero would be the kind of the common, everyday, working class Jewish person. That tended to be the hero in these types of stories. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to even say, the priests do this and the Levites do this, but we do this. And everyone goes, yes, we're awesome. It's not the story Jesus tells. Jesus says, a Samaritan. Why is that significant? Well, in that culture, in that day, there was no group of people more hated and despised by the Jews than the Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. They saw them as half-breeds, people who were unworthy of God's love and blessing, and they went out of their way to walk by Samaritans any opportunity they had. They avoided them, had nothing to do with them. 
And so Jesus says, hey, you know the people you hate? I'm going to use them as the hero in this story. And so a Samaritan follows the same pattern. Let's look at what he does. Let's see how the Samaritan responds. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Let's look, go back to the pattern of see, go, and do. What does the Samaritan see? He sees a person. The other two saw a problem. The other two saw an inconvenience. The Samaritan sees a person in need, a very real person who's hurt. The first two thought, I don't know what will happen to me if I help them. The Samaritan thought, I don't know what will happen to him if I don't help him. And so he goes to him. He goes to him. The other two go around, sidestep their way around the problem that they saw. The Samaritan goes to him. And what does he do? He does several things. I want to just unpack in that verse several of the things that he did. First of all, it says that he bandaged up his wounds. He went to him and he did something. He bandaged up his wounds. Now, just in this kind of context, not a lot of people in the first century Middle East carried first aid packs with them. Maybe you don't either. I don't think you walked in here today just in case with a box of bandages in your side pocket, just in case someone gets a splinter. It's not what all happens here. How would he have bandaged a stranger who was bleeding, bruised, lying naked on the side of the road? What would he have bandaged him with? His own robe, his own cloak. So he literally tears off pieces of his own clothes to bandage him up. He gives of himself to meet a very real and immediate need. Then it says something. Jesus gives a very specific detail. Jesus could have said, and the Samaritan helped the man. End of story. He doesn't. He gives very specific details. He says that he poured what on the man's wounds? Oil and wine. Oil and wine. Now, this is very specific. It was used to kind of treat a wound to stop the bleeding. But most specifically, what Jesus is referencing to a room full of religious people is what was used on a regular, if not daily basis, in temple worship and practice. Oil and wine. There was oil for anointing. There was wine for various festivals and represented each the blessing and anointing and presence of God and the forgiveness and cleansing of God. Oil and wine were common practice for priests and religious leaders. The Levites had set up, any Levite in that room would have set up a hundred times in their lifetime, oil and wine for worship. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you know the things that you do to worship God the right way? This guy used them the right way. He wasn't kind of blinded by religious activity and ritual. He took oil and wine. The Samaritan took oil and wine and tended to the guy's wounds. And then it says that he literally put him up on his donkey and quite literally bore the burden. He didn't just write him a check, didn't throw a quarter in his cup. He said, you're coming with me. Pick the man up and carried him down to take care of him. Goes to an inn to take care of him. Verse 35, the next day, after a night spent taking care of this guy, the next day, this Samaritan stayed the night with this man who was hurting, this man who was when this man who was robbed, stays the night with him. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, you look after him. And when I return, when I come back up the way of blood, when I come back up this road, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That was really, really interesting. The Samaritan not only sees the person, but he goes to him and he does something. He gives of himself, literally with his cloak, with the oil, the wine, sharing his donkey, giving his donkey to carry this man down. But he also gives not just physically to the man, he gives financially. 
He gives to the innkeeper and says, I want you to use this money to take care of whatever needs this guy has. And when I come back, I'll repay you for every penny. It's a fascinating story that Jesus tells us of a person who sees and goes and does. And then Jesus pauses and he looks out in a room of convicted religious leaders. And in verse 36 says, So, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Which, which of these three do you think was? Remember how you asked, remember, was it you? Yeah, it was you who asked a minute ago, who's my neighbor? Well, according to this story, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Now look at how the expert of the law answers. Verse 37, the expert of the law answered, the one who had mercy on him. Notice how he won't even say the word Samaritan. Could have said the Samaritan. Won't even admit it because of his own pride, his own justification. Now, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus gets incredibly simple and practical. And he says in verse 37, last half there, good, go and do likewise. Drops the mic, walks out of the room. <laughs> End of story time. That's it. Good. You should do the same. You keepers of the law, you readers of God's heart, you leaders should go and do the same. Go and do likewise. Extend mercy. Go, see, do whatever you can do. This is the challenge that Jesus is giving to this group of leaders. To, to, to not just be people who walk by because of all of our own reasons and all our own justifications and I'm just too busy and I just don't have time or I don't have money or I don't know what to say or I don't know what to do. Jesus says, this is what you do. You see. And when there's a need, you see a person, not a problem. And you go. You don't walk by, you go to. And you do. You do whatever you can. Whatever it takes. Whatever is possible for you to do, you do it. You don't walk by, but you walk to. This is a shocking story that Jesus told to a room full of religious people that I think is a story you and I need to hear today. You and I need to hear this today. And we need to actually run our lives through the same grid that each of these three characters went through, the same grid that Jesus used in each example. I wonder what it would mean for us to ask ourselves the same questions. Who do you think God wants you to see? Who do you think God wants you to see? Who, who, who maybe is a, a people group that maybe you've overlooked or maybe it's a people group that you see and you feel like you have such a heart for and a burden for, but you have yet to really do anything about it. Who does God want you specifically to see? We're all going to see different opportunities, different people, different places of need differently. But I do know that God is inviting you to see someone, to see a group of people, to see a real need. Like maybe you've never seen it before. Who do you need to see? And where does God want you to go? In light of what you see, where is God inviting you to go? Now listen, it's going to look different, again, for every single one of us. For some of you, it will literally mean you go across the street and you actually talk to your actual neighbor. You extend relationship to them. For some of us, it will mean that you go to someone on your way to work and you get to know their name and you have a conversation and maybe, just maybe, you get them some breakfast, you get them some food, or whatever they may 
need. You may go there. It may literally take you across the city, may take you across this country. It may take you across the world. I don't know where God is going to lead you to go. I just know this. It's going to be out of your comfort zone because God loves you too much to let you settle for comfort for your life. He's created you for courage, not comfort. So where is God inviting you to go? I know you're busy. You have all kinds of places to be and all kinds of things to do. But is God inviting you to go somewhere today or this week where you might actually be able to experience and extend his love like never before in your life? And then, what does God want you to do? Again, this is going to look different for every one of us. What does God want you to do when you see and when you go? What does God want you, specifically you, to do? Now, I know whenever we talk about this in church, because we talk about this a lot at Soul City, it can feel so overwhelming. Like, oh my God, there's so... Like we're like the murder capital of the country. Like school systems are so broken down. There's just too much. I can't possibly do it all. There's just too much. It's too overwhelming. And what ends up happening is we get paralyzed by the pain of our culture and of our city. And you say, it's just too much. There's not, I can't do it all. And so I'm going to do nothing. And the reality is God never asked you to do everything. But he's inviting you to do something never asked you to do everything. He's got that part under control. That's his category, doing all things. That's him. I know we forget that sometimes. But he is asking you to do something. He's inviting you in to do something, to join up with where his love is already at work, to be a part of putting his love to work in this city, this country, around this world. I don't know. But I do know that God is inviting you to see and to go and to do something with your life. I don't think any one of us wants to have the story of our life be like the first two characters in the story. I just don't think you want to get to the end of your life and go, I did a really great job of walking by a lot of people. I stayed focused. I plotted my career ahead. I did everything I was supposed to do for my life. I don't think any of I don't think you want to tell that story with your life, do you? That I did a really good job of narrowly avoiding real pain and discomfort in my life. I know in your heart, I know because I know this of my own life, I want to be said of me. He was someone who saw, he saw a real need, and he went to it. And he did something about it. Compelled by the love of God, he did something with his life. I want my kids to tell their kids that that's what I did. Not that I provided them with all the great comforts and all the great sort of luxuries of this life. Those things are fine and great and have their place. I want my life to count. And I know you do too. I want my story to be one of someone who didn't walk by, but who walked to. That, that's, I'm telling you guys, we've been, for this whole month, we've been in this Love Works campaign. That is at the heart of it all. We, are, we want to be a church that is good neighbors. We want to be good neighbors. We want to take this teaching of Jesus and read it rightly and apply it to our lives. And so that's why for this whole month, if you've been around here, you've heard us talk about Love Works. We are relentlessly talking about this audacious, only God invitation that we've been given as a church. 
We feel compelled by God to pray for our city like never before. We've asked and invited people to pray for our city like never before, to pray for the real needs, the real problems of our city. We've asked people to give like never before. We are not messing around. We're out to raise $300,000 to bless and extend the work and the ministries of great partnerships here in the city. You can read all about them on our Love Works site. You just go to soulcitychurch.com. You can read all about the partners that we're partnering with. And we're asking people to serve. Why? Because like we see in this story, we don't just give, but we go. We serve. We roll up our sleeves. We become a part of what God's doing in this world. And that's why I don't want you to miss this opportunity. This next week, our church is setting out to serve a combined 3,000 hours together. We are setting out to put God's love on display and to put it to work every single day of this next week. Literally, hundreds and hundreds of people are going to be gathering together all over the city to put God's love to work, to not walk by, but to walk to. And I don't want you to miss this opportunity. And I thought what might be helpful to give you a little glimpse of what this looks like is to invite two folks that have already stepped up and stepped in to be a part of Love Works. They're a huge part of our church. I love them and so grateful for them. I want to invite uh, Jerome and Julie Chang to come on up here. Can you welcome them up to the stage? Hello, guys. This is what's so fun. Uh, these guys, uh, Jerome and Julie, just got married two weeks ago, like exactly two weeks ago, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Very cool. <laughs> A picture from their wedding, so awesome. How's it going so far? You guys pretty much experts at marriage now? Yeah, oh, we're yeah. pros. Yeah, pros. for sure. Yeah. Two, yeah, weeks. two weeks. Yeah. Come on, you guys got this. Uh -huh. uh, love these guys. They're involved in multiple different ways around our church and kind of stepped up and stepped in early on Love Works to say, that's what we want to be about. We want to be those kind of people. How long have you guys been coming to, to Soul City Church? Uh, two and a half years from yeah. now. I've been, I've been coming about three years. That's right, from about just about the very beginning. And I know for each of you guys, this is a value that you carried into your marriage from your own lives. Why is it so important for you to, to love and to serve and, and to give like this? Why was it so important for you to step up first to give in Love Works? Like, why did you step up to be a part of Love Works? Well, so there were several reasons, but I mean, one is with the partners that Soul City has specifically for Love Works, we, we actually met at one of the partners. Um, so it's very near and dear to our heart, but. We love the fact that all of the money that's being raised for this campaign is being given outside of the church to our neighbors. And so every single dollar and that, we didn't want to miss out on that. Yeah. Um, you know, not just, you know, with our hands, but also with our grip on finances, loosening, mm -hmm. God's loosening our grips on finances. And this is, this was a way to do that. And why for you, Julie, is, the, is serving and giving like this? I mean, I know that both of you were already doing that. Why is that so important for you guys, for your marriage and for your lives? Well, for us, um, we really think that demonstrates like being the church, like really looking outward. Um, and like Jerome said, like loosening our grip, like inward and giving outward. And um, this is, Love Works is a practical way for us to really love our neighbors and to not just say like, yeah, we support you, good luck. Or mm -hmm. yeah, we support you, here's funding. But to really say like, no, we support you, we love you. So we're going to roll up our sleeves mm -hmm. and actually come alongside you. Mm -hmm. And um we just think there's something really special and really beautiful when we come together as a community. Like yeah. not just looking into our own hearts and like, oh, what can we give or what can we do? But when like, there's just power in like the numbers and the community aspect. So that was yeah. really important to us. 
Yeah, I know um, there's a lot of folks here, because we've been talking about this a lot. We really believe in what God's doing through Love Works. There's a lot of folks here who maybe have been like, okay, maybe, we, maybe I should get involved, maybe I shouldn't. What would you guys say to someone who's thinking about signing up to serve and signing up to give through Love Works? What would you say to them today? Um, the biggest thing would be to stop and, and to pray. Um, you know, it sounds cliche. It even came up to us last night mm-hmm. was to really, before you start getting all worked up of, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this, I want to do this, is just to stop and without any distraction and to pray. And she reminded me of that, and it's part of the reason I love her. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, from there, you know, God, I, I, we strongly believe that God will give us direction or give you direction in whether to serve whether to give, whether to do both, as well as how much to do as well. And chances are, just as we were, um, you know, we'll, we'll be stretched mm-hmm. and challenged. I mean, through the middle of paying for a wedding and honeymoon, and, you know, we felt that this was something that we really wanted to be a part of, um, mm-hmm. not just once, but again, we've, we've contributed and we, we feel led to contribute again. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of our step, step process. I love it. And I love for the two of you, what's so great is not only are you building your marriage on these kind of foundations of, of seeing, of going, of doing, but I mean, you, you mentioned quickly, you guys actually met while serving together? Yeah, you could meet your spouse. So definitely okay, volunteer, so sign up. Shameless Highly plug. recommended, guys. I'm just yeah. saying, <laughs> results may vary, but it worked for you yeah. guys. Yeah. So there's a little ad incentive. We thank Julian Drone. Great job. We thank them. I love it. And I love, I love, I love, uh, I love that. I love, if, I don't know if you caught Jerome, but I mean, they gave kind of early on and then even um, letting us know, you know, even last night felt prompted like, man, God, is there more we can give? Our family had given early on, but we just said, you know what? God, there's more we can give here. Our kids went to their little give, save, live jars and pulled out their money to give. Guys, I, I just, whatever it takes for your life, so that you don't miss this opportunity or any opportunity that God brings you to, to, to see, to literally look and go, okay, this city, there's a lot of brokenness in the city. And to say, instead of just being overwhelmed by it, I'm going to actually go to a place that I can serve. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to give of my resources. I'm going to give till it costs me something. There's things we're not going to do this month because we gave to this work. But I'm telling you, it changes your perspective on God and on this world. It helps you live a better story, the kind of story you actually want to live, someone who goes, sees, and does what God is inviting you to do. And what's really fun for us is uh, a little incentive this week was so fun uh, to see a group of people who kind of came together this week and said, look, we want to help give the last little push towards Love Works. And just so you know, uh, as Jerome mentioned, 100% of what we raise through Love Works, 100% of the $300,000 goes outside these walls. I don't know if you got that. This is not like going to buy lights or anything like that. This is going to literally get behind great partners who are doing great work to give them a push with some projects that they've been stuck on and to extend our partnership well throughout the rest of this year. So 100% of that goes out. Just so you know, we're just at about 50% of our financial goal and just about 50% of our serving goal. What that means is there's a lot of folks here, here in this room, here in Overflow, watching maybe this online, who have yet to step in the game of Love Works. And I just want to strongly encourage you as your pastor not to miss this opportunity. 
And so it was a little incentive. A couple of folks got together this week and said, look, what if we could do this? What if we could put together a little matching gift so that every dollar that's given for this, the rest of this week, every dollar up to $36,000, very specific number, every dollar up to $36,000, we will match dollar for dollar. Every dollar given, we'll double it. This is some NPR pledge drive kind of stuff going on right here. <laughs> but what a cool incentive. Maybe you have yet to hop in and give to get behind this work of God. Then this is the week to do it. Or maybe like Jerome and Julia or Jeannie and I, you've given and you look back and you go, you know what, we can give more. I can give more. My gosh, all, if all this comes from God, then it's my joy to invest it into others, to do something with what God has given me. I know that's this kind of story that you want to live. And so I just want to strongly encourage you to do whatever you have to do this afternoon, to go to the site, to sign up to serve this week. I'm telling you, when we get together next week, you will not want to have missed out on this incredible act of love that's going to happen this next week. And figure out, pray as Jerome said, be quiet, be still, and pray and see how God leads you to give. And in fact, what we've committed to do is taking time in our services to pray. We've been praying for our partners this month, but I actually want to pray for you right now. And I want you to take a moment and pray and go, God, how would you want me to be a part of this specific situation? There may be others that God leads you to, things he leads you to see and places he leads you to go and things he invites you to do. Again, you don't have to do it all, but you can do something today. So I want to pray for you for that end. And then we're going to close with one song and then we're done. So will you pray with me right now? God, we thank you for the example set before us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that this is not just a story you told, but this is the life that you lived. You, you literally held nothing back. You gave to the point of your own death, and then you gave more. You gave us life with God. You gave us a relationship that is far greater than religion. You've invited us into this life with you. You've invited us into a better story. And so, Jesus, I pray that whatever it is that you're kind of prompting and leading and compelling to folks, that it would be you, not just words that I say, not a clever campaign. God, all of that will fade and wash away, but it is your love that will remain and prevail. It's your love, God, that actually is what our city and our world so desperately needs. It's your love that I need that we need. And Jesus, I thank you that you didn't walk by me. You didn't walk by me and my sin and all my excuses and all the ways I justify my actions. You walked to me with your love. And so would you help me, would you help us do the same? To not live lives of walking by, but to get in step with you and walk to whatever it is you're leading us to. God, thanks for the generosity of this gift. What a cool and creative way to get involved in what you're doing. God, I pray that you would pour out an unbelievable spirit of generosity and service in our church, so much so that our partners feel propelled into this year and our city takes notice, not of our church, of our lives, but of you, God that we would literally be like a thousand little lights shining on you, Jesus, that the world may see and know who you are through our love. 
I pray, God, that that is what happens over the course of this week and over the life of this church and in my life as well. I pray this in your name. Amen.